So then the next layer is endothelial cell, and then you have the sinusoid and cuffer cells, and that's where all the, the, the um, blood that has been processed goes through. There's a space, they call it the space of this, and then there's another layer of hepatocyte. Okay, so as you are going through clinical medicine and as you are going through the underlying pathophysiology, if you understand and you can visualize these cells and these hepatic units, it's easier to understand why is it that the patient is presenting the way they're presenting, okay? So there are three systems, three systems that, uh, that, we, are, uh, that we are measuring within the liver. Three systems. Hepatocyte plasma integrity, membrane integrity. The second is measurements of detoxifying and excretory function. And the third is synthetic capacity of the hepatocyte. So those are three functions of the liver, main functions of the liver, okay? Um, the liver is a very busy organ, okay? There's, it has multiple um, uh, functions, just like the kidney does, right? It's the same as, as the liver. So we're gonna look at, a, and now we're gonna look at each one separately. So when it comes to hepatic membrane integrity, um, what we are measuring is a disruption. What we're watching for is any disruption of the plasma integrity um, or disorders that are associated with elevations of liver enzymes, okay? So, um, so the three that are most important when it comes to hepatocellular membrane integrity, hepatomembrane hepato integrity. 
is going to be your alanine aminotransferase, which we know as ALT, mm -hmm. aspartate aminotransferase, which we know as AST, and lactate dehydrogenase that we know as LDH. So those three um, indices are the ones that are going, you're going to focus on if the suspicion is that there is a disruption of the plasma membrane. All right? Remember what I told you at the beginning of clinical medicine one. All right? You order labs to confirm what? Well, you, you, well, you already, already know. So you've already taken the physical. You've already done the complete, you've already taken the history. You've done the complete physical. You, you, you did vindicate in your head, right? You have your three differential diagnoses. Now you're going to think, okay, I'm thinking this disorder that disrupts the plasma membrane, therefore I'm gonna be looking at the ALT, ASD, and LDH. All right? If you're thinking is that this may be the biliary tree, on the other hand, the one that you're going to focus on is the alkaline phosphatase, which is ALFP, gamma glutamylin transferase, or GVT, or the 5-nucleotidase, um, which is 5-NT. Um, and let's jump into each one of them separately. Elevations of AST and ALT generally um, rise in tandem. If the AST is elevated, the ALT will be elevated as well. All right? They, they, they generally will rise in tandem, except, except with certain disorders, specifically chronic alcoholism. So if you see an isolated AST elevation, isolated AST elevation with a ratio of two to one, where the AST is twice as, as high as the ALT, then you have to think chronic alcoholism. Now before you start pointing fingers and giving brochures, for you know, centers for them to go to rehab. There are other disorders that may cause an isolated elevation of the ALT. So make that of the AST, sorry, of the AST. You need to take a good history and physical and make sure that you rule out everything else before you start pointing fingers. Okay. If the ALT is an isolated ALT and the and you have that gut feeling, keep digging, keep asking. Ask the patient, they try to, try to do your, your motivational interviewing, right? You, you know, you, you put in your skills. If, if there is a caregiver or if there's a family member, see if you can get some information there. But um, typically, usually, if you see an AST twice as high as ALT and the LT is normal, Dig a little deeper, there's something else going on, more than likely it's gonna be alcoholism, okay? There are other um, reasons, but more than likely it will be alcoholism. Um, uh, some of, a few is if the patient is um, cirrhotic, um, if there is acute viral hepatitis C, 
which is very rare because uh, hepatitis C tends to be very um, indolent. Um, so a patient won't be coming in, you know, with any complaints. It's, it's usually an incidental finding. So, um, but just, just think about it. If it's two times the ALT, um, think chronic alcoholism. All right, elevations of the LDH, okay? Um, it is included in your liver panel, all right? It is, it's, it's typically included in your liver panel. However, it's not as specific, it's not as reliable as your ALT and AST for liver function, okay? Um, the reason for that is because um, they, it may be elevated for other reasons, all right? And maybe it, it may be elevated in, in muscle or prostate disorders. With muscle disorders, you're thinking um, of muscle, muscle breakdown, okay? Um, if there is any destruction, whether it be it traumatic or degenerative, you can see an elevation of the LDH. The concern here is not, yes, you need to find out what is the un underlying problem, what is the root cause of the LDH being elevated, but on the, other, on the other side of that, where is that LDH going to be excreted? Through what? Through the kidneys. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be an enormous protein because those are, these are enzymes and proteins. This is a, a tremendous amount of proteins that the kidneys have to excrete, and then you have to be concerned about kidney function. Okay, so yes, you have to dig deeper, dig deeper and find why is the LDH elevated. Absolutely, find the root cause of the problem. But also, keep in mind that while you're watching that the LDH is rising, keep an eye on those kidneys, okay? Um, so when you see an elevated L LDH, look outside of the liver, okay? Um, don't be consumed so much uh, for about the liver. Yes, take, make sure you get a good history, make sure you know, look at your liver, but we have typically an elevation of LDH, there's another problem going on outside of the liver. Alkaline phosphatase, um, it's, <clears throat> now this is a membrane issue, okay? This is a membrane issue if there's an elevation of alkaline phosphatase, but it is the membrane of the hepatocyte adjacent to the biliary caniculi. So alkaline phosphatase will be elevated when there is not, there is a biliary problem, but it can be elevated because of a hepatic problem too. But typically if you see an elevated FOS, it's the membrane around the caniculi, the biliary caniculi that are, that is disrupted. Therefore you have to think this has, this has, is, whatever this is, is involving the biliary tree, okay? All right, yes, all right, yes. Um, so, 
when there is a biliary tree problem, all the enzymes will be elevated, but AL, the alphas is the one that will be greatly elevated. Okay, so if, if, it, is, if, it, if it involves especially obstruction of the biliary tree, anywhere in the, in the biliary tree, it's the alphas. If, if you are concerned that a patient comes in with a biliary tree problem, meaning the head of the pancreas, the gallbladder, common bile ducts, and, um, and the duodenum, that, that whole section there. If you're thinking that there is a pathology there, look at your, your alphas. Your alphas will be elevated if that's indeed the case. So let's think about it. Then let's, let's look at our, our biliary anatomy. What, where can there be an obstruction and what can that obstruction be? I hear a voice over here. Gallstones. Gallstones, specifically gallstones in the common bile duct, okay? Because it, it will, the common bile duct will, will obstruct all of the, of, the, of the bile. And it causes elevation in all of the enzymes, but specifically the alphas. What else can cause obstruction? Tumor, tumor where? In the pancreas, where in the pancreas? The head of the pancreas. The tumor of the head of the pancreas can cause obstruction of the biliary tree, and you'll have elevation of your alphas, but all the rest of the enzymes will be elevated, but your alphas will be greatly elevated. Okay, um, what other, what else can cause um, either obstruction? A stricture? Inflammation, the PowerPoint says it. What do we, <laughs> inflammation of what? Pancreas, okay, and acute pancreatitis. Have you done pancreatitis yet? No, okay. Uh, what else? Inflammation of what else? Is that the pancreas and? The gallbladder itself, okay? So inflammation of the gallbladder, inflammation of the head of the pancreas, tumors of the head of the pancreas, a stone in the common bile duct, all of those pathologies can cause elevation of all of your enzymes, but especially your alkaline phosphatase, okay? Now, there are four non-hepatic reasons why your alphosphate is elevated. Let's say that you, you, you took the patient's history um, and it's not consistent with any of the disorders that we just said. No pancreatitis, not consistent with pancreatitis, or tumors, or obstruction, or anything. And you, or you order the labs and your alphas comes back elevated. But it, the, the story does not connect with the biliary tree or the hepatic um, the function. So you have to think, what is the age of the child? In children, the alkaline phosphatase will be elevated because of bone growth, because of longitudinal bone growth, okay? 
So it is expected that the outcross will be elevated. All right? So think, who is your patient? Remember what I always ask, who's your patient, right? right. Who's your patient and? Where are you? Where are you? Exactly. So think about the age of the patient. Also, um, you have to think about specifically bone disease, but specifically metastatic disease um, of, 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 of the patient. Let's say the patient has a history of breast cancer or has a history of um, lung cancer um, and now presents with bone pain or a pathological fracture where they just hit themselves lightly and now they have a fracture and when they look the bone is very, very um, weakened and very uh, brittle. So um, it, the alkaline phosphatase will be elevated in that case. And actually a patient with, with prostate, prost, prostate cancer, a patient with prostate cancer who presents with an elevated alphos has metastatic disease until proven otherwise. Okay? Um, the other reason why it would be elevated is because of a fracture. Patient, you're an orthopedic PA. You just put a, um, a art, artificial hip on a patient. And you, do, you draw your labs on day two, post-op, and the outpost is elevated. That's to be expected. So it's normal. Okay, because the bone is starting to recover and alkaline phosphate plays a huge role in bone recovery. So keep in mind of that. Who is your patient and what is happening? The third reason is ileal disease. Okay, so what's before the ileum? The genunum, what's after the ileum? The cecum, okay. So any disease after the jejunum but before it gets to the cecum, okay, any disease of the ileum can cause elevation of the alpha. Hmm. All right, you, you just finished the large bowel, right? No, that's the, that's the small bowel. Did you do the small bowel diseases yet? We did IBS and IBD. That's, that's large that's bowel. Large bowel, yeah. So, so no small, small bowel, bowel yeah. Okay. So you want, in your, your Clin Lamed lecture series, when you get to the small bowel, they'll talk to you about um, the labs and you, it's very common to have an elevated alkaline phosphatase with ileal diseases. Um, and then pregnancy, especially if it's the third trimester, okay? Why is that happening? And the third trimester, the babies has start having longitudinal growth. Mm -hmm. So the alkaline phosphatase of the mom will be elevated because she is harboring a, ba a child. Oh, get it? Yeah. All right, good. So those are the four reasons that a patient would have an elevated alkaline phosphatase outside of the liver. Now, these are non-hepatic reasons. The, the previous um, PowerPoint are disorders or uh, that correlate with hepatic disorder versus non-hepatic disorders. 
The DGT um, is elevated with the alphas. Usually it, 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 is, um, it goes tandem with the alphas. Um, and it may or may not indicate um, biliary tree issues. So why order it? So typically the DGT is not part of your regular complete metabolic profile with the liver enzymes. It's not usually there. Yes, sir? If you have a low AOP as a child, would that inhibit growth? If what? If you have a low, a low ALP. Albumin? No, a AOP. Um, okay. Alkaline phosphatase? ALP. Yeah. P as in Peter. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Would that inhibit growth as a child? That all depends. Uh, that is a, a long conversation, and and the answer the short answer to that it depends. It all depends on what other pathologies are happening. How old is the child? It's it's a lot. So it's a good question, but that next semester in pediatrics, I got you. Okay. All right. Yes. Right. So the reason that we do the GGT, that you would order the GGT, is if you are not clear of what the etiology of the problem is. Okay. You order the regular, the regular um, complete metabolic profile. Um, and it's kind of non-specific. Patients complaining of right upper quadrant pain. You're waiting on the ultrasound. You know, sometimes you'll see that also ordered um, by the hepatologist or a gastroenterologist. But it's not something that we order regularly in in general practice. But I'll let you know that if it is elevated, it will confirm biliary. There's something in the biliary tree. And I've had patients who um, presented with all of the classic symptoms of something in the common bile duct, or perhaps even the head of the pancreas. All of the classic symptoms, but the ultrasound came back negative, the labs came back, um, you know, slightly elevated, but not really um, impactful. The CDC was, was fine, there was no elevation of the white cells. Um, but you have that gestalt, you have that gut feeling that something is, something is in the biliary tree. So um, order the GGT, the GGT is elevated. So I went in ahead and ordered a um, ERCP, which is endoscopic retrograde polyangiogram. Basically what they do is they go through the esophagus into the stomach, through into the duodenum, and then they do a scope up into the duodenum and into the biliary tree. Um, and uh, there was a, a small tumor of the head of the pancreas that was blocking the, the biliary tract. But it was small enough that they couldn't pick it up in the ultrasound. And, um, and the CT scan was um, not really helpful, so. Um, so you see how, how you, you go from here 
Mm -hmm. So it's narrow, 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 narrow. You order your labs because you're, you're, you know in your differential diagnosis that so you order it, it confirms what you already know, but now you have to dig deeper and order your CT scans or maybe an endoscopic retrograde colangiogram. I like saying that. Um, and I hope you look it up and watch the video because it is, it is fascinating how they can go all the way up and scope it. It's really pretty fascinating. Um, before we had that, yes, I am that old. Before we had the ERCP, we had to go in surgically and do an exploratory laparotomy and open the patient in order to see what's going on. So, you guys are blessed. Okay, so that is the GGT. So, If the GGT is two, two to three times greater than the, uh, if the AALP, sorry, if the alkaline phosphatase is two or three times greater than the GGT, or the GGT is normal, consider other sources like bone. So if the, if the alphos is two times the, the GGT, or, if the GGT is normal, then consider possibly that this is a bone issue. Um, this is, when you get down to this level where you are, you are ordering GGTs and you're, you're trying to, that's, that's when, that's the time that you call a gastroenterologist, that's the time that you start collaborating with um, your collaborating physician or with a specialist. Um, I generally will order the GGT, but at the same, same time, I'm writing the referral to see the gastroenterologist. Um, because of the type of environment that I worked in, I was very far away from everything. I had to do everything. So, you know, here in this environment, it's easy enough for you to pick up the phone and call the PA that works for the GI guy and get them over there in two days. Um, for me, it was a 50 mile ride and a three month wait. So a lot of times I had to go a little bit beyond the scope of family medicine in order to help my patients. So, um, but it's important for you to understand what, what is it that you're looking at when you get that report. And why did you order it? Okay, so let's say that you ordered the labs and um, patient's still complaining of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and the big gastric pain. Um, everything comes back normal except the GGT is elevated. Just like when the AST, an isolated elevation of AST indicates alcoholism, an isolated elevation of GGT, you need to think two things, alcoholism or alcohol abuse, or anticonvulsants, if the patient is on anti-seizure medication, okay? 
because um, anti-seizure medications are typically um, uh, metabolized through the CYP450 um, pathway in the liver, and, um, and it can cause elevation of the GGT. So with acute hepatocellular disease, we have to think about um, three, four things that can cause hepatocellular issues. Viral hepatitis, A, B, and C. Alcoholic hepatitis. You have to think of toxic injury, like um, acetaminophen uh, poisoning or, or any type of, of, of overdose and uh, inadvertently or, on, on, or purposely. Uh, and ischemic injury, um, just like an acute hypertension where um, the blood pressure is so elevated that um, it's not enough blood is getting to the liver and it causes, um, because, the portal, because of portal issues there, because of the portal system, if the systemic pressure is elevated, it affects the liver and the liver becomes ischemic, okay? So those three, those four things are, are known to as acute. Remember, this is called acute hepatocellular disease. So when we talk about alcoholic hepatitis, we're talking about the 19-year-old kid who just got into, into college and they did a binging party and um, they're bringing him to the ICU and to the ER because he, he's unresponsive. He's drank so much alcohol that it's causing his, and you know, he's, he is intoxicated, but the liver enzymes are all gonna be elevated um, because that's an insult to the liver. So that's an acute hepatitis alcoholic hepatitis. All right? The Bucks won the Super Bowl. Everybody went crazy, started drinking too much, you know, and you're the PA on call. Hey. All right. Um, the toxic injury, two things, typically with the very young and the very old. And the very young is because mom or dad or the caregiver um, gave them too much of the medication. It doesn't have to be acetaminophen. It could be bifenacin or it could be anything like Zyrtec now it's over the counter. So, um, you know, inadvertently they, they gave them too much and now they have a acute hepatitis or toxic injury to the liver. Thankfully, um, and they bounce back pretty pretty quickly as soon as um, you know if the patient's hydrated. Sometimes they need um, acute uh, dialysis, but they do very well. They bounce back pretty pretty well. And ischemic injury, I just I just um, explained to you why you would have ischemic injury. Uh, so all of these causes acute hepatocellular disease. So when, because I know you guys are test crazy, my, well, my questions are the same questions. I'm gonna give you a case, okay? 
if it is an acute problem, who are, where are you? Who's your patient? Where are you? So if it's an acute issue, think about acute causes, okay? And then go for each one, your vindicate. Okay, this could be infectious, this could be alcoholic or toxic, this could be hypertensive. All right, so what, who's your patient? How is the patient presenting? What are the symptoms? What are the physical findings? Um, what labs do I need? What, what labs do I need to order to confirm my diagnosis? Okay? All right. So, <clears throat> the ALT and AST in these cases of acute hepatocellular problems will actually elevate it, elevate, elevate, and, and peak at 24 hours. So you will see a constant elevation of the LFTs up to 24 hours. After 24 hours, typically, we start seeing the liver starting to, to re, uh, recover, and you'll see the LFTs start going down and plateau, and then going down and plateau. So um, don't be surprised if you, you know, this is a patient like our 19-year-old who drank too much, and comes in with hepatic, acute hepatic injury, that the LT, ALT and AST may rise, 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 rise at 24 hours, and then you'll see it starting to, okay? Now that's acute hepatocellular disorders. In chronic hepatocellular disorders, it is imperative that you know that you do not label someone with chronic hepatic problems if, if it's less than six months. The patient must have abnormal LFTs, an abnormal ultrasound of the liver, um, an abnormal biliary tree, something abnormal for more than six months, then you can, you can label it chronic. Um, first of all, the reason why is that when you label it chronic early, the patient gets demoralized, okay? It's like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. No, you're not gonna die. I'm gonna do everything possible to get you back to normal, okay? Um, so keep in mind, you gotta keep that patient in a positive attitude. Other, the other reason is, quite frankly, is insurance. If, if you label someone with chronic hepatocellular disease, they may be refused insurance because of the chronicity of the problem. Okay, so be careful when you label someone with hep chronic hep hepatitis, all right? Um, it has to be present for more than six months. Um, the causes may be hepatitis, B or a C. It could be drug toxicity, alcoholic, or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In this country, unfortunately, because of uh, the epidemic of obesity, we also have an epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And typically we see that in patients who are obese with elevated cholesterol and um, the, the fat will start depositing into the liver and cause non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It can occur with age as we grow older, okay? 
Um, but in this country, we're seeing it very early on, even at the age of eight or nine years old. So, and this is a chronic problem that we can detain it if we get the patient on the right diet, exercise, medications, if they need them, we can detain it, but we cannot reverse it. Okay? Professor? Yes. Would acute issue that in acute alcoholism by a, by a college boy, would, would that be present with jaundice? No. All right. So what are the laboratory findings? Typically, we'll have an elevation of your ALT and ASD. Um, this duo likes to stick together and they'll be elevated. Um, but it, again, we, I repeat, if it's an isolated AST that is two to one ratio, think alcoholism. So, that is all about the membrane and the integrity of the membrane, anything that disrupts the membrane um, and the changes that occurs in the AL, ALT, AST, ALP, and your LDH, all right? Now the next one is the, the detoxifying and excretory function of the liver. Um, so you know that the liver not only breaks down um, the whatever that, that we are not utilizing it, okay? And, but it also excretes it into the bile and to the biliary tree and into bile. And, um, and that is best, if you're thinking about the problem with excretion, all right, you think of, you think, I need to order the bilirubin and make sure you order that bilirubin if you think that the problem is with the excretion meaning that the bile is sitting is sitting in the in the gallbladder okay but there's something obstructing it from being excreted into the duodenum so the best way to measure that would be the bilirubin um just a little reminder that what is bilirubin um, basically, it comes from the, the breakdown and turnover of the red blood cells. Where, where are the red blood cells um, broken down? In the spleen. And then from there, those metabolites go through the liver and then excrete it out the, the biliary tree and into the duodenum. It also uh, comes from, it can come from myoglobin in the muscle, all right? So once the bilirubin is formed, that and it's in the circulation, right? The red blood cell went through the spleen, it broke down, and it turned it turned into bilirubin. That is called unconjugated bilirubin. Unconjugated bilirubin. It is insoluble, and it is bound to albumin, and it is not in the urine, unconjugated bilirubin. <clears throat> so it doesn't turn the bilirubin yellow, it won't, you know, the, the urine yellow. Uh, 
um, this is insoluble, bound to albumin, <clears throat> and it's not, not excreted in the urine. And this is unconjugated bilirubin that's floating around in your, in your system, has not gone through the liver, okay? Once it gets in through the liver, the albumin breaks off from that molecule, the, the bilirubin molecule, and now it becomes unconjugated. They divorced. They don't want to see each other anymore. They broke up. That's conjugated bilirubin now. That is water soluble. So, and that is excreted in the urine. Okay? So, let's think about it. If it's gone through the liver, it's called unconjugated, right? No, conjugated, sorry. They broke up. They broke up. They're no longer together. So there's, it's conjugated bilirubin. And there is a problem with excretion into the duodenum, where is that unconjugated bilirubin going to go? Unconjugated. Because it's soluble in, in the, through the kidney, it's going to be excreted through the kidney and in the urine. So in patients who have a problem with the excretion, remember we're talking about the, the excretion function of the hepatobiliary system, those patients you would expect to have bilirubin in the urine, okay? Because it's unconjugated. So you order a urine analysis, and why are, so I'm gonna ask you, why are you ordering a urine analysis if we know that this is a, a Goldstone in the common bile duct. Because you want to see it. What do you want to confirm? Unconjugated bilirubin. Unconjugated bilirubin in the urine. The patient will complain of dark urine. Now you want me to repeat it? No, 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 no. The unconjugated cannot pass but the conjugated, once it passes through the hepatocyte, Correct. now it goes through the biliary tree. But there's an obstruction, there's a problem with the excretion. Mm -hmm. This unconjugated bilirubin is water soluble. Conjugated. Yes, conjugated. So it's gonna be elevated in the serum, but it's also going to be elevated in the urine, okay? All right, so if you order urine, urine analysis, what are you going to expect? High level of conjugation. High level of bilirubin will be present. Bilirubin is not supposed to be present, bilirubin will be present. So this is that process of thinking and understanding the pathophysiology. You can justify why you're ordering the lab that you're ordering, okay? All right, now let's say, just for kicks and giggles, let's say that it's not, you're not dealing with a, um, 
with an excretion problem with the hepatobiliary, but you order the labs and the conjugated bilirubin, the unconjugated bilirubin is elevated. Something is going on with, with no beyond that before it goes to the liver. So now you have to, but so that bilirubin is not water soluble. So you're not going to find bilirubin in the urine. If that, if your, if your differential diagnosis does not include the hepatic or the uh, excretion, then why are you ordering the, why are you looking for bilirubin in the urine? Because unconjugated is not water soluble. Mm -hmm. So pre-hepatic issue, you wouldn't be looking for a urine analysis for increased bilirubin. You, you no may order a urine analysis, but not to look for bilirubin. This right. post-hepatic, you would to see right. the conjugated increase. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, we don't use those terms. That's old school. Even that's old school. <laughs> you can see direct and indirect, yes, you can see. But when you're talking about, you know, it's usually in, in studies and in, in research and it's conjugated and okay. But yes, it can be direct or indirect, same thing. Elevations of both conjugated and unconjugated results in um, jaundice of both. Okay, if unconjugated and conjugated are elevated, you're going that results in jaundice. So why is it that they are they are elevated? That's why you take a full history, do a physical come up with your differential diagnoses and find out why. Why is it that this patient has um, elevation of unconjugated or conjugated bilirubin? So unconjugated, elevation of bilirubin that's unconjugated with hemolysis. Now I'm gonna dig deep in the bowels of your history. Hemolysis. Okay, what if when you have a patient that you're thinking hemolysis, what does that mean? That the, the blood cells are rupturing, mm -hmm. right? So, what it, what's that called? What what are, what are we thinking about? We have all these diagnoses: disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Why does that happen? Typically. This is an immunologic problem. It's, uh, we see it a lot in two cases, in, in septic shock <clears throat> and um, trauma, major trauma, where the patient has received a lot of blood products, a lot of platelets, a lot of plasma, a lot of uh, um, intravenous fluids and um, the patient can have disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Um, thrombocytopenia purpura um, is another uh, condition that can cause hemolysis. Idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, RITP, 
microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. What's the most likely cause of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia? Dapsone, right. If it's challenged with Dapsone, then you have, to, you have to determine whether the patient has G6PD deficiency because if he does take it, it's gonna cause a hemolysis. And then sickle cell anemia, we all know what it is. We don't need to go over it. Yes, Cause a hemolysis. Okay. So this is unconjugated bilirubin. Uncon because this is all happening pre-hepatic. It's before it gets to the liver. So all of this is happening before it gets to the liver, right? So this is unconjugated. Another reason without hemolysis, this is, the, this is conditions that have, have elevated bilirubin that is unconjugated, elevated unconjugated bilirubin without hemolysis. So typically we'll see this in the newborn and um, for two reasons. The first one is the physiologic exchange that occurs from maternal fetus or interuterine fetus to the fetus's own blood. Okay, typically this takes about a week, okay, a few days for it to happen. And during that time, you may have an elevation of unconjugated bilirubin, but that there's no hemolysis going on. It's just an exchange that's happening physiologic and that is normal. The second reason why the unconjugated bilirubin would be elevated in the newborn without hemolysis is because the patient, the baby is being breastfed, okay? And um, what do we do for that? We put them under UV lights. Yeah. Now we'll talk all about that in peace, okay? So I'm not gonna get ahead of myself, but just know that unconjugated bilirubin, when it's elevated without hemolysis, without hemolysis, who is your patient? It's probably gonna be a newborn that's being breastfed. Um, now, let's say that it's two months later, baby is brought in for a follow-up, 
Um, and the baby still has ele elevated unconjugated bilirubin and no sign of hemolysis, then uh, we have to think about Kreigler-Nanjar syndrome, which is very rare, but um, it, is, it can happen. If it is a child, um, then you have to think Gerbert syndrome, Gilbert syndrome, and that's another that we'll talk about later. But the, the important thing is they have to, uh, if you have an elevated unconjugated bilirubin, the question is, is it with or without hemolysis? Okay, so how do we know if it's hemolysis? Which, which indices in your labs will be, uh, will be elevated in your, um, what do you look for? The reticular side. Thank you, very good. Very good. So an elevated retic count with an elevated unconjugated bilirubin. Think about diseases with hemolysis. A normal retic count, right? That means there's no hemolysis. Who's your patient? Is the patient and you know that this is not this is not hemolysis. It's probably physiologic jaundice or the baby's being breastfed. Hemolysis, no hemolysis, unconjugated bilirubin. Separate those out. Who's your patient? You got your diagnosis. All right, what time is it? It's nine. Okay, let's take a 15 minute break, and that means we're here at 917. 917, back in your
to reiterate, um, acute hepatocellular disease, think viral, think alcoholic, think toxic, think ischemic. And then with chronic, it, the, the um, list becomes a little bit longer, um, but also viral hepatitis, toxic, toxicity, and alcoholic disease, certainly non-alcoholic um, fatty liver disease can cause chronic hepatocellular disease. Um, what, when do we call it chronic? Six months. Six months. Six months. Six months. Okay, um, some causes of conjugated hyperbilin, this is after it goes through the liver. After it goes through the liver, it's conjugated. So we have to look for biliary atresia. So that is a congenital Disorder. So, how old would the baby, would the, would the patient be? How old would the patient be? Like a newborn, no? Yeah. Newborn. It would typically be a newborn that um, after after a couple weeks or a week, um, the the uh, conjugated uh, the. There's been the physiologic change. The baby is not being breastfed, um, but the baby um, has symptoms of biliary obstruction, and the conjugated bilirubin is elevated. Okay, so think about it. If the if the the bile right is not being released. And the baby is, is drinking her, his milk or her milk, but it's, it's, and in the milk, there's fat in the milk, right? So the bile is not being released and it's not breaking down the fat. What would the mommy tell you what's going on with the baby? Like um, puking? Mm, no, the other way. Oh, diarrhea, diarrhea. diarrhea. Right, so bile, bile breaks down fat. And if, if the bile is not being there's the bile is not being released into the duodenum, clay colored stool and um, diarrhea. Hmm. So that um, biliary atresia, obstruction or obliteration of the bile ducts. Um, call it call it. Yeah, I know you guys have not had your clinment yet in bile and biliary tree, but cholelithiasis just means um, gallstones in the in the gallbladder. Okay, um, cholangitis is the inflammation of the common bile duct. That means that one of the stones is uh, going up into the common bile duct and it's obstructing and it's inflamed. Um, primary biliary cirrhosis, uh, that means that there is uh, uh, damage of the biliary tree, uh, the, there's cirrhotic, non-functional cells. Um, you usually see that with cancer. Primary sclerosing cholangitis, that's when the, the, the inflammation is so severe that it can rupture. Post-surgical strictures, um, after they, they do a cholecystectomy and they remove the, the gallbladder, 
um, that can cause uh, scarring and um, the, un the conjugated bilirubin has uh, nowhere to go, so it starts to increase in the blood and you'll have increased conjugated bilirubin. Parasitic infection, um, and that is um, tapeworm. Okay, where what meat should you be considered about? Pork. pork. Typically, it's pork. Poorly cooked pork. Can uh, if the tapeworm and can have tapeworm, and um, and it, for some reason it loves the liver and it loves to settle into the gallbladder. Actually, there, there is a there is a episode on the Good Doctor <laughs> that it was right over quadrant pain, and they thought it was obvious, and they opened it, and it was just a big ball of worms. It was pretty, oh. pretty gross. We pulled them. Huh? Yeah. Nasty. All right, um, compression of the bile ducts um, outside the liver. Um, could be pancreatic cancer, even if the pancreas is severe enough that it causes swelling of the head of the pancreas can obstruct the, the, the duct. And um, hepatic cancer. So, all right, so that, that was the, um, ex, the, the Synthetic, the, no, the excretory uh, function of the liver. Now we're going to look at the synthetic function. Synthetic function just just um, re refers to the ability to build, to build. Okay, we were excreting, we were detoxifying, right? We were looking at the plasma cells earlier. Now we're looking at the function of the liver to build. That there is a synthetic function of the liver. And um, the two things that the liver is responsible for building is albumin, okay? Albumin, and the way that we measure it is the total protein and the complete metabolic profile, right? So your total protein, that, that will think, that will measures albumin. Causes of low albumin, hepatocellular disease, anything that disrupts that membrane in that, in that um, functional unit, uh, the hepatic functional unit, anything that disrupts the membranes can cause hypoalbuminemia. Uh, malnutrition, okay? So in malnutrition in this country, in the United States, ages, who's your patient? Who do you think about a possible hypoalbuminemia due to malnutrition? Who's your patient? Homeless. Huh? Homeless population. The homeless. Who else? Elderly. Raise your hand. I heard you're all talking at Huh? Elderly. Elderly. Yes. Why? Tea and toast diet. They are not able to feed themselves. They can't feed themselves, okay? 
the, the function of feeding. Okay, what else? Why would you think the elderly? That's great. But why else would you think the elderly? Yes. Resources. Resources. Have, have you gone to the store and done groceries lately? Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna get on my sofa. <laughs> How much does a pack of chicken wings? It's Aldi. It could be ten to fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars. Mm -hmm. I even saw a pack for nineteen dollars. Mm -hmm. Chicken wings. Gotta go to Wild Forks. Can you think about you know ground beef? Mm -hmm. One pound of ground beef. That's where I go. It's so good. Seven dollars, eight dollars. Yeah, that's, that's good quality. So, and these people at work are are living mm -hmm. on a very tight budget. Yep. So they can't afford that. So what do they what do they eat instead? Carbs. Carbs. Carbs and what else? Sometimes they'll eat what? Canned food like canned, tuna. Like canned tuna. tuna. Yeah, high in sodium. Even, even cat food. Oh. Because it's super inexpensive. Mm -hmm. And when they like, you know, you go to a place like, I don't know, they have BOGO at Publix or, yeah. so they suck up on it. So the cost of, of protein, protein rich foods, is so high they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So it is very common in this country to see elderly people have malnutrition, mm -hmm. be malnourished. What about the like locations that bulimic and anorexia? Like it's an interesting phenomena with anorexia nervosa and um, and bulimia. These are eating disorders um, because what happens is that the body goes into um, starvation mode and it starts retaining as much as it can. So in bulimia, for instance, they'll eat and some of it will be absorbed. Okay, so we generally don't see malnutrition. In, in anorexia, we may see it, but in very, very severe cases. Um, why do I feel I speak with somewhat of an authority is because I've, I've taught GI. This is the first year I don't teach GI, by the way. Um, and I teach geriatrics, pediatrics. I, I love teaching the, the two extremes. Um, but with geriatrics, I'm very passionate about that. And um, I encourage your, the class to think about doing a community service project and see that's something that is self-sustaining and is not a one and done, okay? It's a project that will keep, keep going. Uh, we started one in, in, um, in Texas where um, there was four, four elderly folks, three women and a male, and um, one of the students would go, and the three of the, the four of them with the with the student would budget 
and uh, buy the food and then divide it between the four. So they actually saved money and they got good nutritious food. Okay. So, um, and then they got to meet someone different, they got to they talk, and so the social side of it was, was pretty impactful as well. So these projects are really, really helpful and, and they're, they are very meaningful, not just for the, the, the community, but for you as, as a person. Um, <clears throat> all right. Malabsorption, patients who have malabsorption issue, where is protein absorbed in your body? Where is it absorbed? Is it in the stomach, the duodenum, the the ileum? Where is it absorbed? Protein. 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 Duodenum. Where is it? Where are they? Primarily in the jejunum. Okay, right after they go through the duodenum, right? Mm -hmm. The the all the the. uh, Proteases come come in and lipase and uh, break to break down all the proteins and then those are absorbed in the genome. Any disease that will cause inflammation in the small bowel, the genome or the ileum, will cause malabsorption of protein, will cause hypoalbuminemia. So if they have any <coughs> Any disorder of the small bowel will cause malabsorption. Okay, <clears throat> you've, you've done the, the large bowel. We haven't done small bowel, right? Okay. Um, acute is infectious, I mean, inflammatory and, and state and cause albuminemia and renal disease because the protein goes through the kidney and instead of the kidney retaining the, the, urine, the albumin, it starts just letting protein go through. So those are cases, um, causes for hypoalbuminemia, a low, a low TP total protein. And can you recognize this? <laughs> Come on now. So the second thing that the pro, that the liver produces is what? Coagulation factors. Coag factors, coagulation factors. So we looked at coagulation factors from the standpoint of hematology. Now we're gonna look at it in the standpoint of gastroenterology because this is where it's being produced. All right, so it's important for you to know that the intrinsic pathway is the PTT, so that you're gonna order PTT if you're concerned that it may be an intrinsic factor. Or you can order a PT if you're concerned if it's extrinsic factor. So how do we know? We put um, factor 10, because 10 X marks the spot, okay? That's where P- the PT and PTT pathway meet. Now, 10 can't function without five, which is half of it, and it fits in the notch of the 10. And then you have prothrombin, thrombin, okay? And that's factor 10A, which converts prothrombin factor two into thrombin, okay? 
And then thrombin, fibrinogen into fibrin. PT, if you're thinking PT, think seven, okay? And it's, it's the shortest pathway and it's the luckiest number seven, PT. And then you have the intrinsic pathway with your PTT, all right? So what are those factors? Think tenet. And those are 12, 11, 9, 8, and 10. Whoa. So, PTT and PT is also a test that you can order to measure the function of the liver. How is the liver functioning? So the liver function alone really doesn't tell you the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. If, you're th if you want to measure the synthetic function of the, of the liver, you have to order COAG, PTT and PT, to determine the synthetic function of the liver. Especially if the patient is presenting with easy bruising, bleeding, um, any signs that uh, there's a coagulopathy. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. So we we covered the liver and we've covered the complete metabolic profile, we've covered the liver enzymes, we've covered PTD and PT. Now let's look at viral hepatitis, hepatitis A. Hepatitis A is an RNA virus, okay, and it is transmitted fecal oral. What does that mean? Fecal oral. Okay, does someone purposely put their hand in poop and put it in their mouth? No, they consume food with excrement on it. Contaminated water, okay, how else? Food with excrement on it. Okay, so someone wipes their butt Excuse my language. Mm -hmm. Doesn't wash. Doesn't wash their hands and then goes and prepares food for the church family. Yikes. <laughs> and then the church members within 48 hours will present with abdominal pain and diarrhea and feeling terrible. Okay. So that's fecal oral. So just what I'm getting at is that you gotta, you gotta be creative is how, how does this happen? Okay? <clears throat> um, contaminated water typically happens after in a natural disaster. When a hurricane goes through and disrupts all of the, the water systems, hepatitis A, you have to think as a clinician that you probably will see an outbreak of hepatitis A. All right? Oh, that's high academic. So it means that the, you're doing, the, you had a, a procedure done and it was contaminated with hepatitis A. Oh, that's a lawsuit. Huge lawsuit. But yeah, it is possible. Most commonly, it's because somebody has it didn't wash their hands and prepared food for everybody else and they ate it and that's where they get it. Alright, so how do we test for hepatitis A? Um, we test the HAV, hepatitis A virus, IgM and IgG. IgM is what? 
in the moment it is present right now if it's IgG more chronic okay um, and or you can have the immunoglobulin if you are immunized in this country um, we started immunizing for hepatitis A not too long ago. Um, we never did hepatitis A back up, up until probably the 2000s. Okay, but now we're, we, are, we are immunizing it. So we're not seeing it that often. Um, and um, this is what it looks like, um, what the virus looks like. And then what does your labs, what do your labs do? So in hepatitis A, look at your ALT and your bilirubin, okay? The ALT will rise um, and peak and that's when your patient will have symptoms. Symptoms are um, low grade temperature, generalized myalgias, malaise, they feel like they feel horrible, and they'll have diarrhea. Um, <clears throat> and a lot abdominal pain. Um, <clears throat> on examination, you may feel a little bit of an enlarged liver, okay. and they may have a little tenderness on the right of the Um But the ALT is, is the one that you need to, if, if you're thinking this could be hepatitis A, you're going to order liver enzymes, but of the liver enzymes, which one are you going to be looking at is the ALT. The bilirubin also peaks when they have symptoms, but it stays elevated a little bit longer. That's the orange one that you see there. Now, on the bottom one is the anti, the immunoglobulins. When do the immunoglobulins become positive? So you're seeing this patient, everything indicates that the patient has hepatitis A. You order the hepatitis panel, right? The hepatitis A panel. Um, are you gonna order IgG or IgM? Why wouldn't you order IgG and IgM upon the patient presenting to you with symptoms? Because it hasn't given it time for the right. immunoglobulins. It doesn't, they don't produce, your body does not create immunoglobulins until four weeks, almost four weeks after symptoms occur to, and um, uh, even up to four months. So are you, so the thing what I'm saying is that when you order labs and you're ordering your LFTs and you're thinking hepatitis A, you have to think where are you in the natural history of the disease and if the patient is, is about three weeks into it, don't order the immunoglobulins. Okay? When they come back for follow-up in three to four weeks, then or the immunoglobulin. And that way you have a, a confirmation of, of the problem. And remember that this is a reportable disease. If you do have it, you have to call the public health department. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what, what do you report? Will you just report it like after you've got 
confirmation with the yeah. after confirmation. Okay. Everybody clear on that? Mm -hmm. Good. Hepatitis B um, is transmitted through infected blood, blood products, and sexual um, contact. And you have your hepatitis B surface antigen, antibody IgM, core antibody IgM, core antibody IgG, and surface antibody. And this leads your sequence of events. Okay, so the patient is exposed, and when does a patient present with symptoms? Three months after? Three months? About three months after the initial exposure. Hmm. They come with symptoms. So the one that you will be watching is your ALT. Now, if between zero to 12 weeks, the patient comes in and said, I had unprotected sex, and I, don't, I am not vaccinated against hepatitis B, then you would order a hepatitis surface antigen and expect that to be elevated, be positive, right? Mm -hmm. Because the virus is sitting on the surface of the immunoglobulin, right? Mm -hmm. So the now, if the, if it's four weeks into it. You're gonna order the hepatitis C antigen, E antigen. Then, and the ALT will be elevated. But see when everything else will come positive is well after the patient's symptoms occur. The core, the surface, the IgM, it's well after that. So if a patient comes to you, let's say, four years later, four years later, and says, I have hepatitis B, um, then you order the whole panel and you would expect these to be positive, right? The, uh, the, the IgG means that it's gone. The IgM would be undetectable for core. Um, and the antibody for surface antibody would be positive, um, and your core will be positive, but the IgM will be negative because it's gone. Remember this? Mm -hmm. You don't remember it. Nope. Now you're going to remember it. Okay? But all of this. Think about where your patient is in the natural history of the disease, okay? I remember giving you a case of a young person that had to go in for a complete physical exam for um, college, I think it was, and, uh, and the labs came, came back, um, surface antigen negative, 
IgM negative, IgG negative, hepatitis B surface antibody positive. And I asked you, is this acute, resolved, chronic, or vaccinated? Okay, so now you know that this is vaccinated. So what's the difference between core and surface? Hmm? The, difference, the difference between core and surface. Okay, so at the beginning, all right, the antibody sits on, sits on the surface, but then it gets to the core. Okay, now? Yeah. You need a picture? Picture would help. Okay. Google it. Okay. Okay. Hepatitis C is an interesting um, virus. It used to be non-A, non-B. Now we call it hepatitis C. It is the most chronic, chronic um, common chronic blood-borne viral in the United States. Um, we do serologic testing um, for uh, hepatitis C. Um, we can do the um, enzyme immunoassay, or we can do target amplification and do a PCR. These days, we're doing molecular assays, so more than likely when you order hepatitis C or suspicious of hepatitis C, it's going to be a PCR. So this is, this is the most recent CDC guideline for persons with hep, for hepatitis um, testing. I am not going to insult your intelligence and read this to you, but you do need to know all of this. This is the guideline for the CDC regarding testing for hepatitis C. So please mark it up in your in, on your tablets, on your, and uh, that, that this slide you need to know well, okay? Um, regarding universal screening, okay? Um, and a lot of times when you're doing your EMR, uh, uh, a uh, window will pop up regarding hepatitis C screening if the patient's over the age of 18 and you have to ask have you been screened for hepatitis C? Um, all pregnancies, all women, all pregnancies, all women, all pregnancies, adults over the age of 18, that's the universal screening. Um, one time, hepatitis C, regardless of age, you have all persons with HIV, um, people who use um, intravenous uh, substances, um, certain medical conditions that require dialysis, transfusions, um, in, in emergency settings, and children born to, to moms with, with Hep C. Um, and then you have routine periodic testing, and this is for patients who have um, ongoing issues like in, um, IV injection, uh, IV drug use, and dialysis. Um, and anyone who requests it should be tested. 
This is um, the most recent algorithm from the CDC. I just pulled that down uh, a couple weeks ago. So um, you have option A and option B. Because um, you have the PCR, if the PCR is positive, you, got, you have to refer to care. If it's negative, no need to do anything. Um, option B is if, the, if you order an anti-hepatitis C virus uh, test and it's positive, then you have to do a reflex um, PCR and then refer or you do the um, anti-HCV test and it's negative, then you stop. Why would you do one or the other? Why would you do B instead of A? A is the preferred. Huh? Is it available? Why would you do B in, instead of, the, the, the CDC says the option A is the preferred. Time but mm -hmm. they're giving you a second option. Why? Why? Who would you choose to do the second option? Huh? Typically, these are patients that the insurance will not pay for hepatitis C PCR. Or you're working with um, patients who do not have any any insurance. That's the cheapest way. The anti-hepatitis C virus test is cheaper than the PCR. But the optimal, the preferred, the one that you, when you leave this program and you get more certified and you're gonna order, is the PCR. It's a nuclear amplification test for hepatitis C. Now, since we're special people, healthcare providers have their own little algorithm. Um, and this is coming from the CDC. So you have the initial testing. Um, if you've been exposed. And then um, if it's positive, you're gonna be referred to care. If it's negative, um, you follow up with a uh, PCR in three to six weeks. And if that's negative, um, then they do another test for an the anti-hepatitis C virus after four to six months. Um, and if it's negative, you stop. If it's positive, that means that there's zero conversion and it has to go to, to refer to care. Okay, so this algorithm you must know. And how would a patient be exposed to um, hepatitis C? Before that, Liam, you had a question? Yeah, sorry. Um, when would it go to the right where it says it's a flow diagram does not indicate it could be followed? Stop. Like, why would you go that way instead of the, all the way the Right. Um, that's if the RNA, the HD RNA, is negative. Oh, it's just orbit. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, please, please, please um, familiarize yourself. More than that, know 
this algorithm. Why would, why, how would a healthcare provider be exposed to hepatitis C? Needles. 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 During surgery? Mm -hmm. How else? Where else? The emergency room? Mm -hmm. Remember, this, these are blood-borne pathogens. You have to be exposed to the body fluids and that. Mm -hmm. So if they vomit on you, right. if they pee on you, if they defecate on you, if, they, if you have a direct in, in the emergency room, they have an active trauma case, yeah. And they know that they're hepatitis C positive. Now, if they call you later, because after the surgery, they, they ran the test and it's positive, everyone that was in that case will have to be screened. Okay? So you won't know in the moment, right? Because typically a patient comes in in a trauma, you don't know. Well, it's, uh, understand is ALT and ASD in a patient who has um, has hepatic failure. Um, a patient with hepatic failure can have elevated ALT and ASD, but then as the failure continues, especially with cirrhosis, it'll go down, go down, go down, actually to normal. But then it will, after a few months or a couple of years, and then it starts to decline and go down, 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 down. And that means that the hepatocytes are not, not functioning. So they're not, the AOT, ASD are not being produced, they're not, 
they're not there, so it'll just continue. But it will be elevated, and then they'll be decline, 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 and you might catch them when they're normal. Unless you take a full history, you won't know where, where is this patient in the hepatic failure cycle. Hmm. Okay, so, um, yes. So on that, are they still gonna usually present with hepatomegaly then? Like what's gonna cause the kind of suspicion there outside of, hey, we did the cage questions and we, we recognize that they're an alcoholic. Right. But, but so is this just long-term screening or? This, well, if it's a new patient to your practice, um, you're gonna go through the entire history. Typically they'll, they'll have um, abdominal discomfort. Uh, they'll have, um, they'll have uh, malabsorption. They'll have periods of diarrhea. They'll also have problems with bleeding disorders because they're not producing coag factors. Okay. So, you know, as you're taking their history, you start to connect the dots mm. and know that when you order the labs, you know what to expect. Got it. Okay? All right, guys. I will see you next week. All right. Thank you, Dr. Diaz. You're welcome.